You can be seated. It's a delight to welcome you to worship with us. This is the time in our service when we press into the preaching of the Word. The Word of God is living and active and sharp, and as we hear it, by the grace of the Spirit, we believe it. And God shines a light on us, our need, our sin, on Him, His provision, His glory, and we are changed. Don't worry if you don't remember every word from every sermon that's ever preached to you. It's kind of like meals. You may not remember what you ate last Wednesday for dinner, but it's a good thing that you ate. And that rhythm of eating and eating and being fed and being fed makes you healthy. That's why we get together every Sunday and sit under the preaching of the word. One quick note, if you're wondering why we take a long time to greet each other, and it gets a little awkward sometimes in there. I mean, you extroverts love that part. You're like, what? We're done talking already? You introverts are like, can somebody please just bring us to attention? (laughs) Downstairs this morning, there's 25 to 35 children being loved and discipled, and it takes a little while for their parents to properly check them in so that everybody's in order and safe down there. So we're trying to extend that time by a few minutes so that parents can land with us with all of you from the start of our sermon here. All right, I believe that's good there. Okay, today we're dealing with just a phrase from Scripture. Please be the kind of people who read your Bible and dig at it so that even words and phrases, you chew on it, you think about it, you say, why did the Spirit inspire the writer to use that phrase? That's good stuff. Today we're going to do that together. We've walked through this big picture text a couple of times Today, we're just going to deal with one of the phrases. So why don't you pray with me, and then we'll jump into this. Father, be good to our servants down in the basement as they love and sing with and disciple our children. May they come to hear and believe the gospel. Would you give us hundreds of really beautiful, boring testimonies of children who were raised in the life of this gospel community to see the glory of God in the face of Christ? Do that. And would you feed us big kids? who come to you like children, needy, uh, needing to be loved, needing for you to be patient with us and to slowly and simply teach and admonish us. And I pray that as a father in the life of our church, you'd help me do that well today. Let your words be helpful to us, I ask. Amen. Amen. All right, let me start here. If you jumped on our website, you would see the Seven Philosophical Distinctives of Seven Mile Road. And if you went to the second one, it says this, deeply relational. Here's what we mean by that. Even a quick and casual reading of the New Testament will unveil for you that Jesus' church was marked by a beautiful and messy and holy intimacy. The saints in your Bible knew each other's names. You see that over and over again. They knew each other's stories, fears, dreams, sins, strengths, weaknesses, all of it. They shared life together in the gospel. And this wasn't only for the good of their souls. This was for the good of the advance of the mission of the church. They got more and healthier work done together because they were a part of a community where 
their strengths could be complemented and where their weaknesses could be checked and corrected than they ever would have if they were just all on their own. Okay, now that reality that a deeply relational community life enabled very faithful and very fruitful mission shows up as clearly in the second chapter of Galatians as it does anywhere else in your Bible. There's a wicked, serious moment in the text in which both the missional advance of Jesus' gospel and also the relational unity between Jesus' people, they hang in the balance. And things worked out only because Peter and Paul and Barnabas were not lone rangers, but they were a part of a diverse community of differently wired leaders who were in this mission thing together. My job today is to help you to see that, to feel that, to get that down in your bones. And if I do this well, by the end of this sermon, you will be saying, us too. Us too. We need the Spirit to birth in us a willingness to be in community like this where we can be complimented and corrected by brothers and sisters who are not just like us. All right, so let's do that together. I'll set the context of the big story. Giant confrontation in this text. Not carefrontation, confrontation. This is a steel cage match in your Bible. This is Peter and Paul, the two big dogs the heavyweight champ and the intercontinental champ, and they are coming together. Here's what happened. Only my one guy who likes wrestling got that reference right there. Thank you, Eric. Okay. In the older covenant, there was a giant wall separating Jews from Gentiles or non-Jews. It was a cultural, social, racial, relational wall. What it was was a clean and unclean thing. Separation was mandated by God to show off and ensure the holiness of his people. They were clean and Gentiles were unclean. But in Christ, a new covenant had come. And by the shedding of his righteous blood on the cross, Jesus had provided the one means for all sinners from all races, to be made clean. And in doing so, Jesus took a sledgehammer to the wall that divided the races, that separated them. And he said, no more separation. There is one God and one gospel and one Savior and one means of justification, my cross. And so there is one church, one baptism, one table. And so what Peter and his friends were doing with the Galatian Christians in the city of Antioch was eating with them. I need you to see that this was scandalous and beautiful. Jews and Gentiles going to five guys after church every Sunday together. Okay, this went on, eating together, until some other men came down from Jewish Jerusalem. They were called the circumcision party. Party there means group. This week at home, Julie was like, why would you throw a circumcision party? I don't understand that, Daddy. (laughs) Circumcision group, crew. All right. They were not ready to welcome non-Jews into the household of God without them first being what? Circumcised. That's why that was the name of their team. So picture them coming to Antioch with folded arms and squinty eyes, scratching their chin and shaking their head. We don't like this. So what does Peter and everyone who was with him do when they get into town? They bail on five guys. 
they chicken out. Do you see what I just did there with chicken and five guys? I need somebody to wake up this morning. All right. Whoa. In fear of upsetting or troubling or causing a relational rift with the Jerusalem visitors, they withdrew from their meals with the Gentiles. And we've talked about how this was a very sinful, awful thing to do. It would have jeopardized the unity of the church. It would have struck at the very tender consciences of the brand new Christians in the church. This was bad, real bad, wicked bad. So bad that it threatened to halt the advance of the gospel in the city of Antioch. And that's what almost happened, except one guy would not go along with it. One member of that apostolic community refused to separate from the five guys' lunches. Refused. One alpha dog was willing to go publicly postal on Peter in front of everyone and call him out and say, no, this is wrong, this is a lack of nerve, this is a lack of love, this is a failure to walk in step with the truth of the gospel, I will not have anything to do with this, you guys are wrong. Okay, that's the context that we're in this morning. Now, I just want to press today into one fascinating little detail in Paul's retelling of this incident. He says this, we've heard it already, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews also acted hypocritically along with him, and now here's our text today, so that even Barnabas was led astray. You feel this? Even Barnabas. Okay, what's going on here with this phrase? Of all the names that he could have mentioned, at all the different people who separated themselves with Peter... Why is it that he goes, even Barnabas was a part of this? Have you ever been in a situation where you hear that something happens and a bunch of people were involved, and then you hear some specific names, and one of those names causes you to go, no, 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 not them. That can't be right. When I was in high school, there was three students at the very top of our class. They were like in this fist fight for who would have the higher GPA. You know those, those kind of kids? The three of them. They were the big three. We ended up with a valedictorian and two salute, salutatorians. My senior year, there was a little cheating scandal in the honors Spanish class. Lunch was served in the classroom And kids were cheating on the Spanish vocabulary texts by tucking their cheat sheets into their Fritos bags and their Pringles cans. And one of them took it and slid it inside the plastic wrapper of his 20-ounce Coke bottle. Now, don't get any ideas, but it was the honors class, so they were sneaky cheaters, right? Smart kids who didn't want to study. In the middle of exam, boom, the door kicks open, vice principal steps in, nobody move! And he goes desk to desk through Fritos bags and and Pepsi cans, and he's pulling out all kinds of cheat sheets, busted. That afternoon, one question that everyone was asking was what? Were any of the big three cheating on the Spanish tests? Did any of the big three get caught? Let me see that list of names. Is any of their names on there? Why was that the big question for 24 hours? Because if they were, that would have been devastating, right? These are supposed to be your studious, honest, diligent, rigorous, top students. Please don't tell me that Vinnie Fiorino or Lloyd Markham was a part of this scandal. You feel that? 
And if they were, what would we have said? Even Vinny? Even Lloyd? That's what this was. This is Paul's sentiment here. Wait a minute. I also got to let you know that even Barnabas, I'm serious, even Barnabas was a part of this. All right, so that begs the question, why mention his name? Why would that be of such note to Paul? Well, let me take a minute to run you through the Barnabas biography. I'm going to tell you some things about him, and I think that they will help you see why, in particular, his name ends up in this text. So this is the first thing we see of Barnabas in the scriptures. Number one is this, Barnabas freely gave his money to help people. Remember last week I told you that a lot of the Jerusalem Christians ended up in dire poverty? One of the things that was happening in the community was that the people that had land, extra homes, were selling them and bringing the money and giving them so that people would have a meal to eat and be provided for. Do you know who was the very first in line to do this? Who was it? It's this guy Barnabas. Acts chapter 5 says it like this. There was not a needy person among them, for as many who were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then we read this. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Do you feel this? This guy is so concerned with others that he willingly separates himself from his money, from his future capital, to help. That's what he was like. He was... So like this, so all about making sure that others were okay and cared for, that they gave him a nickname. So his name was Joseph, but they started to call him Bar-Nabbas, which means son of encouragement. This guy Joseph is just so strong at being aware of and taking into consideration the needs of others. I'm going to call this guy Bar-Nabbas. He's an encourager. So the next thing that we see about him in Scripture should not be a surprise to anyone. It's this. Barnabas was the choice when someone was needed to go and encourage new Gentile Christians. When the church in Jerusalem first heard that the emergence of a church in Antioch and they realized we need to send someone to check it out and to encourage the brothers... Who's the first name that they came up with? It's Barnabas. Who's the first name they came up with who would be sensitive enough and compassionate enough and, you know, have the social skills and the social awareness to cross cultures from Jerusalem to Antioch and to go and encourage these new believers? Acts 11 says it like this. The hand of the Lord was with the church in Antioch. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And then it says this. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Of course they did. It was his strengths that were needed there. All right, next one. Barnabas was the one who stuck with Mark even after he had deserted the team. So there's this episode in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas and Mark and some others are on a church planting team. Mark's a young guy. And Mark bails out on them halfway through. He runs home to mommy. He wants to play with his Legos and put on his footsie pajamas and sleep in his little car bed. This is what Mark does. He doesn't tell anyone. He just disappears in the middle of the night and goes home and he leaves them shorthanded. Then later on in the book of Acts, Mark grows up a little, and he wants to rejoin the team, and Paul says, no way, and Barnabas says, yes way, 
We need to give Mark a second chance. Acts 15 says it like this. Barnabas wanted, and that's a bad translation there. It's like he had this empathetic desire to give a second chance. He desired to take with them John called Mark. Do you feel that? That's empathy. That's a strength. He's the kind of guy that wants to give a second chance. All right, last one. It's amazing. Barnabas was the only one who was willing to stand with Paul at the start of his ministry. When Paul was first converted, the Christian community stayed further away from him than I stay from Crate and Barrel, like three parking lots away. You know what I'm talking about? They were terrified that this terrorist was going to continue to do harm to the church. And so here you have Paul, repentant, wanting to preach Christ, gifted to do it, longing to be welcomed into the Christian community, and here is the Christian community huddled in fear and skepticism and distance. Who do you think is the one person who steps out from this community and walks across this great divide and says, no, this is not right? If Paul has repented and believed and wants to serve Jesus, we need to love on this cat. And he walks over and he wraps his arm around him and he says, brother, let's do this. Come on. Acts 9 says it like this. When Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And then it says this. But Barnabas took Paul and brought him to the apostles. Okay. And we could keep going. My point is this. Can everyone in here see what kind of person Barnabas was? Can you see where his strengths lied? Like if we had to make the list, we would say that he was a people-oriented, peacemaking, second-chance-giving, move in and out of different social networks with ease, high concern with relationships. I mean, the Bible says it best, son of encouragement. Barnabas was the kind of guy that you would want to teach you how to drive. Barnabas was the kind of guy that you would want to help you with your homework. The other day, Callie asked me to help her with her hooked on phonics. She's not even in school yet. She's in homeschool pre-kindergarten. She's like, Daddy, read this with me. And she says, Pog. And I go, do you see a P in there? Why are you saying the P sound? That's not a P. That's dog. That's horrible right there, right? <laughs> now, if Barnabas was helping Callie with her homework, what does he say? Good, good, pog. That's a word. I love the way that you said that P. That was wonderful. Now, let's work on this letter. That's a D. Do you know what a dog is? See that? So Barnabas is like. I think I said it last time. Barnabas is the kind of person who, when you are done spending time with him, you feel like a cinnamon bun that just got taken out of the oven. Just pour some icing on me right now, and that stuff's going to melt. I feel so loved. I feel so affirmed. You were with Barnabas. Yes. Gospel-saturated heart filled with love for people. So can you see why Paul would have been like, no, no, not Barnabas too. Not the guy that had previously encouraged the Antioch Christians. Not the guy who would give the shirt off his back to help someone in need. Not the one guy who stood with me in Jerusalem. Even Barnabas? That's hard to believe. Or is it? Or is it? See, there is a sense in which now that you know how Barnabas was wired, you might go, I could see how Barnabas' 
strengths made him vulnerable to going along and getting along when what was needed in this moment was for someone to stand up and fight. You know this happens all the time to all of us, right? Even the most solid, gospel-believing saint among us, our strengths have corresponding weaknesses that can lead us into folly and sin. This is just the way that life works, right? So let's talk about this. Some of you are no people. You're very strong at saying no. Can we? No. But what about no? But what? No. Is that a strength? That can be a strength. But it has a corresponding weakness. If that becomes no, I've never taken my kids out to get pizza. And no, I don't even want us to take a calculated risk. And no, I will not let Matt's mom put Christmas wreaths up for Christmas. (laughs) The strong no people said that. That becomes a problem, right? If everything is no and it's never unchecked or complimented, that's no good. Now, some of you are yes people. You are strong at saying yes, and that is a strength of yours. But it does have corresponding weaknesses. If it becomes, I've never talked straight with someone who needed me to correct their sin, or I said yes to helping someone move when I I threw my back out two weeks earlier, or I said, yes, Margaret, we can put Christmas wreaths up at Christmas time. That strength has a potential weakness. Some of us are super high energy people. We need that. We love that. Let's go. Let's do it. There's a hill. Let's charge it. But at 6.30 a.m. on Saturday, we need you to chill out. And someone might need to tell you that your family needs you to chill out. Some of us are super strong, analytical people. Is that a strength? It's a strength, but it can go too far. We have been with you guys at Wendy's. We have watched you at the calendar. Should I get the Baconator or the son of a Baconator? The Frosty has 240 calories. The Coke has 270, but I need a spoon to drink the Frosty. Just buy the drink already. Some of you have the opposite strength. You're very decisive, decisive people. You have no problem making a decision. You go with your gut and you know what's going to be right. That's good, but that can go too far. When Paul McFeeders first floated the idea of planting a church with us, I said, are you allowed to do that? And he said, yes, I think so. And I said, we need to do that. Like tonight, let's go. Let's have a meeting. And he said, Time out, brother Matt. Maybe you should go home and talk to Grace about this. And I said, no, no, she's good. She's set. She's going to want in. We're going to plant a church together. That's not a decision that you want to make within 60 or 70 seconds. Every strength is vulnerable to its corresponding weakness. You feel that? This is most likely what happened in this text with Barnabas. Say it like this. Sons of encouragement... Very, very vulnerable to minimizing the importance of truth for the sake of relationships. But in this text, it was not walking in step with the truth. It was a truth situation. High, get-along personalities are prone, as the text says, to being led astray, passively led, especially if it's going to be avoiding a conflict. They even may become unable to see that what they think is just keeping everyone happy and peaceful is is actually a compromise. Even Barnabas, yeah, in this text, even Barnabas fell into folly and sin. Okay, now what is the remedy for this? What is the remedy for this? The remedy is community. And specifically, 
community where we can be complimented and corrected. And that's our text today, right? Who was the complimentary personality to Barnabas? Barnabas was high relationship guy. Paul was high truth guy. I'll give you an example. When they were doing ministry in Lystra together, Paul was gospeling this proconsul, and this dirtbag magician from his court was interfering with that. Here's what Paul said to the magician. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And then a little forearm shiver. Do you know who would have never said it that way? Barnabas. Barnabas would have said, hey there, Mr. Magician friend. Why don't we go over to Panera together? They got this sweet new vanilla blend. I'll buy you a cinnamon bun. You can tell me your story, which is good. But what needed to happen in Lystra was someone with a little more directness, someone with a little more alpha dog and a little more fire to drop the hammer, wand, on the magician's head. And so it was grace that they were on a team in community that day. The same thing here in our text. Paul just did not feel the same emotional empathy about the Jews from Jerusalem. He just did not feel the same relational tug. The emotions and the opinions of other people were important to him, but they did not have the leading importance to him like they would have with someone like Barnabas. And so Paul Paul was able to say, time out. This is not Panera right here. This is not time for a carefrontation. This is time to be aggressive. The truth is at stake. You read this text and you should thank God that Barnabas was in a community where he was complimented and, when necessary, corrected. Okay, now this totally cuts both ways. I'm not preaching that the encouraging Barnabas types need the direct Paul types, but not vice versa. That's not what I'm saying. They and their mission needed each other. Think about this. Is it not beautiful to you, encouraging to you, that at the beginning of Paul's Christian life, when no one else would take a risk on his behalf, he had Barnabas, who came forward and saved him for the cause of Christ. And then years later, when Barnabas was potentially falling away from the truth, he had Paul, who came forward and saved him for the cause of Christ. Can either of these men boast over the other? Are either of their personality profiles better than the other? God has chosen to build a community of diversely wired people. His aim is not that all the Barnabases become Pauls and all the Pauls become Barnabases. His aim is that they give themselves to each other. The Spirit's aim is that one is weak, the other is strong. When the strength of one makes him vulnerable to a corresponding weakness, the other be there with a balancing virtue. There is grace. There's faithfulness and fruitfulness in a community like that. So here's our big question that I'm asking you today at the end of this. It just stems right from the text. For the good of the advance of the gospel mission in our day and at our church, I want you asking yourself this. Are you willing to live in community that complements you and, when necessary, corrects you? That's a hard thing to nod your head to, isn't it? Why is that so hard? 
Well, I mean, it's got all the community things, right? You got to really plug in. You got to really love people. You really have to give the time and energy to even be in community. But there's this other thing going on. We don't like people who are different from us. And we certainly don't like people who are different from us correcting us. And so we're always in danger of fading to these two different places. One is just complete isolation. We go, there is a perfect personality profile, and I have it. And so I'm just going to go to church in my basement, and we will have the awesomest congregation ever. It's a congregation of just me and all of my strength. The second temptation is a little more insidious, and it's more likely, and I think more dangerous, and that's to fade toward homogeneity, which is just a big word for sameness. Here's what we do. We say, yeah, I'll go to a church, and I'll be a part of a community as long as everybody is like me. That is such a temptation that we are desperately trying to fight in the life of our church, in our gospel communities, on our leadership teams. The only reason that this church is a little bit healthy is the diversity in our leadership and our membership. I say this every single time I ever speak at a church planning event. Seven Mile Road did not get healthy until Ajay and Kevin were leading with me. And we've continued to try and multiply that out together. Why? The first season in the life of our church, we're in our leadership there was complimenting, and there was a lot of correcting of each other for the good of the mission. And we need to do is to get our hearts to a place where we start loving being in community with people who are different from us, seeing it as a gift of the Spirit to us. All right, other than prayer and repentance... Let me just give you two things that will help us get there. It starts with prayer and repentance like everything else, right? Saying, God, you have to change my heart in your grace, by your spirit, or I'm dead. And I confess and turn away from my isolation and my same wanting and my lack of love for others who are different than me. That's got to start in your heart. I can't get there, but the spirit can, and I've been asking him to. There's two other things we can begin to practice that will help us get there. So hear these with me before we're done. One is this, to begin to appreciate and affirm each other's strengths, especially when they're not yours. This is what happens in any healthy partnership, any healthy team over time. Just think of, by God's grace, a strong marriage. So like Grace and I could not possibly be more opposite personalities. We couldn't. We did StrengthsFinder 2.0, and it proved it. There is no intersection at all on our strengths. We do not overlap. This is one of the reasons that I fell wildly in love with her. I had never met anyone like this in my life before. This beautifully exotic creature, like from a foreign land. She moved graciously and slowly. She was impeccably honest and principled. She was quiet. What are all these things? I've never seen them in the mirror before. Then we got married and all of that became what? Super annoying, right? <laughs> wow. This is so cool became, wow, what in the world is wrong with this person I'm living with? But over time and by the grace of the Holy Spirit, that frustration has turned to what? to appreciation. I love the fact now that grace compliments me personality-wise. Our home is richer and happier and healthier because we've stuck together and both of our strengths are there and each of us balances the other's weakness. It's the same thing here. It's the same thing here. We will do more 
and healthier gospel work together than we ever would apart because we're different. And I need your heart to start to appreciate that. And I need your lips to begin to affirm that in each other. Nothing will fashion more unity in the life of this church than seven milers who are one way beginning to affirm seven milers who roll a different way. And I mean with your mouth. I'll give an illustration. I mentioned last week that we had to raise $250,000 to buy this building and renovate this building to propel the mission of our church forward for the next 10 years and beyond. As the lead pastor and the church planter, I led that charge. And if anybody knows my personality, you know how I went about that, right? Built a big list. It was in a spreadsheet, alphabetically ordered, had my schedule ready. Tuesday nights was phone call night, and I attacked my phone. I mean, it took me a minute to get my hand going, but then I went for it. Now, Pastor Kevin, who was with us at the time, probably would not have gone about it the same way that I did. Kevin's fundraising strategy is more like, I'm going to get with Jesus, I'm going to tell him what I need, and then I'm going to go to my mailbox and there's going to be checks in there. Totally wired differently. It would have been very easy for Kevin to see my approach and the way that I was leading that and to do that with his eyes, to just roll his eyes at my type A-ness and to spite me or to resent me or to envy me or to just ignore me and just look past it. But I'll never forget the day that we were in this room right up here and all the money had come in and the, we were here in the building and it was it just had happened, that point where you could go, holy cow, we did that. And we had a meeting, and Kevin stopped the meeting at the beginning of the meeting, and he took some time publicly in front of the rest of our team to affirm me. You know, Kev was good at this, right? I had a lot of cinnamon bun moments in my pastoral time with Kevin. But he looked at me, and he said it kind of like this, Matt, you are the only one on the team who could have led the way that you led, Thank you. Do you know what that does for any potential division, envy, resentment? It's gone. It's gone. Because one person with one set of strengths is willing to affirm the other person and not cut them down or roll their eyes. That needs to start happening around here. Instead of complaining about others who are different than you, Instead of cutting them down or rolling your eyes or going, I got to find a different church that's more like me, affirm. Right now, we could do this in a big circle, right? So it starts with honor your father. So my dad is strong on talking to people. Has anybody noticed that? I'm not so much. I like talking to you when you'll sit and listen to me and I can yell at 180 of you. But the stranger, high on talking to people. Now, sometimes that leads to rolling your eyes if you're not careful, right? Oh, shoot, is he talking to somebody else? I mean, on the bus? Jeez. There is no seven-mile road if my dad is not wired the way that he is. You know this, right? So whatever we got, we don't have that if he's not here. So you need to tell him that. Thinking of Brooke and Laurel and the other women who are helping to teach in our Redeeming Eve track. They are high bookworm, high learner, high truth people. My manuscripts for this day are like 4,000 words. Laurel's manuscript for Friday night was 12,000 words. What do you want to do right there? You want to roll your eyes and go, all right, valedictorian, overachiever, whatever. No. Instead, what do you do? You send her a note or you say, Laurel, Brooke. Patty, Mariah, thank you. I'm so glad you like to teach and that God's given you that strength and that you're taking it seriously. I, I walked out, I was here helping because the heat wasn't working. I walked out going, the Spirit of God, I, I can't even imagine what he can do if the women who are just in that track and leading that track get a hold of the gospel together. If we don't have Laurel and their personalities that doesn't happen. We need to affirm. 
I was thinking of Teresa. So you know how Barnabas was son of encouragement? She is daughter of encouragement. Nobody retweets me more than my big sister, Teresa, back there. You may not know this because you're not pastors. Do you know how incredible it is to have someone in your congregation who encourages you, who affirms you? What do you get mostly as a pastor? You mostly get silence because people are afraid to, you know, it's just a little awkward to say good job. Or you get what? Yeah, all the complaints and the concerns and the emails. But then God gives you someone who loves to retweet your tweets. Now, I'm not that way, right? You guys see me on Twitter. I follow one person, my brother, that's it. And in three years, I've never retweeted anyone. Instead of rolling my eyes, what do I get to do? I love the way that God has wired her for my good, right? And I don't know, I was thinking of Justin who makes us fill out a woo-foo form to report a $2.40 hot chocolate that you bought at a meeting. Now, how many people hear about woo-foo forms and, and hot chocolate purchases and just go, oh, give me a break? No. Instead, what do we need to do? And, and I've done this with him. We wouldn't be nowhere near where we are if Justin wasn't super strong in the ways that he's strong. Nowhere near it. And maybe I know that more than anyone else from the history of the church. So I can either cut him down and give him an attitude and say, dude, it was a hot chocolate. You're making me fill out a woofle form? Or I can say what? Thank you for seeing to it that this, that this church has done really super well. Okay, I just picked on some people who I know trust me and love me, and they'll be fine with this. But do you see how, as a community, we could be able to go around the room and either roll our eyes at each other where we're different, or we could go, thank you. I'm so glad that God has given me to you. I affirm you in who you are. And that will make all the difference as we roll forward together. All right, one more. That's the easier part, if you can get there because it's positive, and this is the harder part. Be willing to submit to each other's correction when needed. So I need you to realize that your strengths, as awesome as they are, can spill over into weaknesses that become folly and that become sin, and to say, I want to be in community where, when necessary, somebody who annoys me a little bit and is different than me is allowed to speak to me and say, yo, you were off right here. So just one example from Grace and I at home. The other day I was in Melrose and I met this guy. And he went on this 15-minute story about nothing but chili or something was involved with it. And like he lost me after the first three minutes, but he wouldn't take a breath. And I'm a pastor, so I can't just go, hey, I'll, I'm out of here later. So I suffered through this 15-minute chit-chat conversation <laughs> And I came home and I told Grace I just suffered through this 15-minute conversation about chili or something. And she said, what is wrong with you? You're planting a church. You tell me you love the city that God has sent you to. You pray every Friday hard for revival to sweep across these homes. How are you ever going to meet somebody or connect with somebody if you won't chit-chat with them? Now, she said it a little more straight Bostonian than that. And what do I get to do in that moment? Either what? Roll my eyes and say, whatever, I'm Matt Cruz, I don't have the time to chat for 15 minutes. <laughs> you feel the pride, you feel the whatever, or what do I get to do? I get to go, all right, Jesus, thank you that I'm in community with somebody who loves me and is different than me and sees my folly and my sin and is willing to look at me across the living room and correct me, because I need to start loving conversations with people in a way that I don't. Uh, we don't have Barnabas' response in this story. We'll ask him someday. But from everything else that we know about this man, his love for the mission, his love for the church, how do you think he responded? Well, as you read, you see that the gospel continued to advance in the city of Antioch, and I think that gives us insight into they got over this division hurdle. 
And part of it would have been Barnabas and the others on the team receiving that correction from Paul and saying, no, let me call the Gentiles. Let's set up another lunchtime. Let's tell them that was wrong for us to withdraw because one person's strengths were received when someone else needed to receive them. I hope you hear a heart of affirmation in me. So I've been praying hard about this sermon, and I didn't come in here like going, massive correction needs to take place. You guys are ready for this. But I want to see us get there in more and more pronounced ways together because I think that the gospel will be much more faithfully held and, and fruitfully born in the life of a community that rolls like this. All right, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for giving us everyone that you have given to us in the life of this church. Thank you that to humble us, you haven't made anybody in this room all that. That we all have different strengths and different weaknesses and different strengths that lead to and are susceptible to weaknesses. That if we look in the mirror, we know I am done if I am the only one. And we come to church and we swivel our head around and we see this beautiful community that you've given us to compliment and to correct us. Father, I pray that you would build great unity and great love and great forbearance. I know that even the risks I took this morning of mentioning names and confessing my sin could either lead to eyes rolling and division and frustration or appreciation and affirmation and a saying, yeah, let's go for this together. In your grace, would you even let that be the response from the preaching today? And would you cause our hearts to celebrate Jesus Christ who is the head of this family and the head of this body and that in him we are one. Give us a vision for the grace of living together like that. Hear my prayer and answer. Amen. Amen.